Let me tell you a little bit about Pastor Rod. Um, What could I tell you? I can tell you that he likes to fish. And uh, one of our favorite things to do is to sneak away and go up to the bishop area and fish for trout. I can tell you that he's a dentist. Uh, I can also tell you that he's a husband and that he uh, has three sons. I can also tell you that he's a reasonably handsome man. I wouldn't say that I have a man crush on him, but he is a good friend. Uh, One of the privileges of my life over the last four or five years has been to meet with Rod generally on uh, uh, Monday uh, at lunchtime. And we kind of do a debrief on what's going on in the life of the church, talk about the service and the sermon. And we have common ground in that we both love to talk about the Bible and theology and those kinds of discussions. And what I've discovered is, with Rod, as it is in many cases in life, what's on the surface is obvious, but there's always much more than's on the surface. I told this story in the, the first service. It was how I met Anita, my wife. Um, she was a freshman at Life Bible College in Los Angeles, and I was a senior in high school. We were both 17. And uh, there was uh, a girl in our youth group that was also attending a Life Bible College. And she said, there's a girl that I want you to meet. Um, up until that time, I hadn't dated very often. And when I did, uh, it was always very uncomfortable. I didn't know what to say. I was a little bit shy, and especially around girls, and especially around pretty girls. Somehow or another, uh, I, did, I, want, I, I felt like if I open my mouth, I'm going to make a fool of myself, and therefore I need to have a good impression so I won't say anything. But I'm a big talker, and that's, <laughs> that's hard to do. So anyway, uh, uh, we met at Camp Cedarcrest at a a youth camp retreat. But it was very, very cold. There wasn't any snow. You know, in the mountains when there's no snow, generally it's just, it just seems to be colder. And uh, I like, we had outdoor things to do, but it was just too cold. And so uh, we met in the dining hall uh, and where it was out of the weather. And I don't know, there were several of us in the dining hall and we had what looked like picnic tables, with, you know, with a bench on either side. And so um, an introduction was made, and uh, so uh, obviously Anita was living up to what she had been described as. So I'm feeling pretty good about this. And we sit down, and we, we engage ourselves in a game of pickup sticks. Now, that's a very romantic first date, isn't it, to play pickup sticks together. But what I found was that uh, her outgoing personality... Uh, I I could talk to her, and and uh, she seemed to hear what I was saying, and so there was a, a level of comfort to that. However, there was a problem. Uh, I went to the uh, I was considering going to Bible college, but of course I wouldn't go until I graduate from high school. So uh, uh, Life Bible College was up in Los Angeles uh, by Echo Park. 
So some of the young people in our church were attending Bible college. I did school, and I went up to the school with them. Now, it was a twofold motive. The pretended motive was <laughs> that I wanted to see what the school was like. The real motive was, will I bump into Anita, this girl I met at camp? And uh, sure enough, I did. <laughs> so I emboldened myself to ask her out on a date. And back in those days, uh, the Christian option was miniature golf. <laughs> so we planned a date to go miniature golfing. And uh, the school was in Los Angeles, I say, and the uh, miniature golf course was over in Glendale someplace. And so we went over and we played around a miniature golf. I think we got something to eat. And we were driving back then on Glendale Boulevard. And it happened. We pulled up to a light. And I leaned over this way. And she leaned over that way. And she kissed me right on the, right on the lips. <laughs> and, and as she's kissed me, I looked out the window and there was a policeman in, in the cop car. And he kind of gave me a thumbs up, <laughs> kind of waved at me. <laughs> Didn't take me off to jail, so I guess it was decent what we were doing. <laughs> well, but then there was a glitch. Uh, I'm, I'm already madly in love with her, but uh, I don't think the feeling's the same way. Uh, and not only that, I'm a senior in high school and she is a freshman in college. And there are other suitors, and those other uh, uh, guys, and of course the student body, it's a small college, and she's getting the raspberries because there she is dating a high school kid. So she had little or nothing to do with me for a couple of years, but then life happens. Life happens, and so in June we will have been married 60 years. And what I've discovered about my wife is there's much more than the obvious, uh, the character, uh, the support, uh, the relationship that's grown through the years and developed uh, is way beyond anything I could have imagined as a 17-year-old boy. And um, then last Sunday something happened that was very significant to me. I was sitting down in, in Carl's chair there, and, you know, the baptismal tank was right there. And those little children were being baptized. And that just touched my heart, and I had a flashback. Because I can remember, I think I was nine years old when I was in the tank. I was being baptized. And I walked away thinking about what I want to talk to you about today, as much more was happening there than the obvious. Those kids weren't just getting wet but they were doing something that was very significant in their lives that they'll look back over. And they were entering into a union with Christ at a deeper level. And it's still in the childhood formative stage. But my prayer is that 60 years down the road, they'll look back and say, yeah, that was an important occasion in my life. I know as I was watching, I had the tears come down, and I think I would just love to jump in the tank and be baptized again. <laughs> but I don't think that's acceptable. However, I want us to look at a portion of Scripture today. It's, it's, I think it's only about eight, eight, seven, eight verses. That it's, it contains the whole of the gospel, and it's found right there in the book of Joshua. And you, you could spend the rest of your life looking at the events of that text and never exhaust it. 
And so I want you to open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the uh, fifth chapter of the book of Joshua. As we continue on with the, the theme of this uh, study is the road to the promised life. And let me read that t- this text for you and uh, just kind of follow along as I read. It says, After all the males had been circumcised, beginning in the eighth verse, after all the males had been circumcised, they rested in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal to this day. Now let's pause there just for a minute and think, think about this. Uh, <clears throat> circumcision is a common practice uh, in the Western world and I suppose much of the Eastern world. Our little baby boys are circumcised and for health reasons. Uh, other places it's still practiced as a, a religious rite. Uh, but in this text, uh, it has uh, its foundation in what had happened probably 1,500 years before. And it was on the occasion when God had appeared to Abraham, the great father of the faithful. And uh, he had made promises to Abraham, and those uh, promises really culminate into what we would call the promised life. And as a sign and a seal of what God had promised on Abraham's part, he was required to be circumcised. Now, by this time, Abraham was 99 years old. His son Ishmael was uh, 13. He had a standing army of over 300 men, servants that were raised up in his household, none of which had ever been circumcised. So think about the faith it took for our father, Abraham, the father of the faithful, to not only circumcise him, have himself circumcised and his son circumcised, but all of those males to be circumcised. I don't know how many, but it was massive. Now, when you fast forward that and you come to this text, uh, they have been now, the children of Israel, 40 years in wilderness wanderings. And all the warriors that were 20 years and older when they left Egypt, they've all died in the wilderness. So all these baby boys were born in the wilderness, and they've traveled there for 40 years, and they've grown into adulthood, none of which have ever been circumcised. Now, this is what we know, that when they came out of Egypt, they had 600,000 warriors. Now, I'm assuming that attrition has happened. Uh, That generation passed away in the wilderness, but they've been replaced. And as life goes, I suppose they've multiplied to even more. So when God says to Joshua, it's now time to circumcise uh, uh, these uh, men who grew up in the wilderness in order to keep the requirements of what God required of Father Abraham, they all have to be circumcised. Now, I'm just trying to let my imagination run a little wild here a little bit, but can you imagine 600,000 men being circumcised? That's, that's an incredible thing to me. Now, if you fast forward that and you ask yourself, 
What is that all about? Well, we then read in the uh, uh, second chapter of Luke's gospel how there's a little baby boy. He's born to a virgin, the Virgin Mary. He's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And after his birth, according to fulfill the laws of God and this covenant relationship, Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. Now, what does that mean to us in our day and time? Obviously, as we look at the text, we're going to discover Jesus in every one of these events. And let me pause just for a minute and encourage you in your Bible reading and your Bible study. As you read from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to find Jesus not only in the New Testament, you're going to find him over and over again in the Old Testament. You're going to see him uh, as he was in his humanity in the New Testament. You're going to see him as he uh, gives his life on the cross, how he's raised from the dead. But in uh, seed form, Jesus can be seen everywhere in the Old Testament. So uh, when the apostle Paul begins to preach Christ, he says of Christ that Christ is uh, our, our Passover, but he's more than that. He says, when Christ begins to work in our heart, there is a circumcision of the heart. And what is that all about? It's a cutting away of the shame. Notice here, it had been roll- the shame has been rolled away. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I'm a man who carries a lot of shame. I've really messed up at times in my life. And I've been a Christian since I was at seven years old. But there's been those times when I'd lived in my carnality. Uh, old Ron Williams was in charge of everything, and God sort of had a backseat. And I have found that I need to have my heart circumcised. Uh, the prophet spoke in the Old Testament that God would give us a new heart. Your old heart pants after uh, the obvious things of the world that seem like they're going to satisfy you. But most of us have lived long enough by now to know that those things that look so promising, either good or bad, at some point in life fade away, and they don't have the payment that they once had. And so we stand in constant need, I believe, of this process of God by His Spirit. And Paul will write that this circumcision happens by the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. So he reveals to us stuff in our lives that need to be cut away. Here I am, an 80-year-old man, and I can tell you that over and over again, God exposes things in my life that need to be cut away. But praise the Lord, I have an ability in Christ because of this circumcision of heart, to say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness, and so do you. So what we discover in this is that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, I like that title in this sense, that rather than referring to himself uh, on most occasions as the Son of God, and he does occasionally, he refers himself Uh, to himself as the Son of Man. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has entered into our humanity. Uh, He is tempted in all fashions that we have been tempted, and yet without sin. 
And it says that God has made the captain of our salvation perfect through the things that he suffered. When I hear the word cancer, uh, a whole bunch of thoughts come to my mind. I go back to, 19, uh, to 2007 when I was diagnosed with a colon cancer. And when I hear the word cancer, I replay in my mind that process of surgery and pain and fear. Am I going to die? Will I survive this? Then I, I, I go back, uh, recovered from that, and, and come to two, 2012. And I go through two liver cancer surgeries. And uh, I can tell you, it's like my world is coming apart. And so when I hear the word cancer, I have a whole another feeling, I think, that people who have not personally experienced cancer have. Because immediately, my, my, this, my, you know, I have an emotional attachment to the person that has cancer. Well, you and I have a cancer of the soul. It's called sin. And it is deadly. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through our Lord. And what happens is this, that, that cancer festers itself, and it deprives us of the good life of God. But we have one who can be touched by the feelings of our firmities. And if you will, Jesus bore to the cross your cancer. I'm talking about the cancer of the soul. I'm talking about that which is so destructive in your life. Jesus died for you to be cancer-free, if you will, so that you have a coping method, a mechanism uh, to overcome sin and bondage in your life. So there's a lot to be said about this, little, this event in this text called circumcision. Then if you look at the 10th verse, it says this, uh, while the Israelites were kept at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover on the evening on the fourth day of the first month. So now we have another wonderful picture. What do we see on the surface? What is the obvious? The obvious is that they're having a celebration. They've now dealt with their past. They've come into this new uh, uh, place. They've come into the land that's been promised to them. And they now have the opportunity after 40 years to have a great celebration of Passover. Now, you who are familiar with the Passover story, uh, put up with me, because I want to take us back to that story. Passover was the culmination of God's judgment upon Egypt. Uh, God has spoken to Abraham, and he says, uh, in the fourth generation, your uh, children will come out of Egypt. And he prophesies that in Genesis. Now, what we know is that uh, those amount to 400 years. And God's people now have uh, become uh, very large. They're, they're, they've multiplied. They're plentiful. And the Pharaoh is fearful of the nation itself. These have been slave people. Now, maybe they're going to rebel. Or if somebody invades us, they'll side with the invaders. invaders. And so he begins to... Uh, persecute and put bondage upon the children of Israel, upon God's people, uh, uh, so much so that he, uh, uh, he uh, 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 makes an edict that all the male uh, uh, baby boys are to be put to death. 
They're to be cast into the, the Nile River and their lives destroyed. So it's a horrible time for the people of God. But God comes to their rescue as they cry out to him. And so the final, the final act of judgment upon Egypt is what has been called Passover night. And here are God's instructions. He says, if you uh, have a small family, then get with a, a, another family. But all of you Jewish people, all of you children of Abraham and of Israel, you need to gather in one place. And on the door frame, around the door frame, you need to put the blood of a lamb or a goat on the sides of the jam and across the top of the door. And when the death angel passes over tonight, all those that are inside the house, they're covered by the blood of the lamb or the goat. Now, God is very specific. This goat, uh, the, 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 the lamb or the goat has to be one year old, and it has to be without any flaw. And that animal has to be sacrificed, and then you have to eat the whole animal that night. And then it happens as God has declared it. And it's a horrible night in the land of Egypt, for there is not a household in Egypt with the exception of the Israelites, that the firstborn male, no matter his age, dies. I don't know uh, when I, I, I don't know, my mind can wrap uh, itself around that thought. Such massive dying. It had to be in the multiple thousands. And you can imagine the sorrow and the sadness. But this was the hand of God. And so Israel was allowed by the Egyptians to escape its bondage. So we come now, fast forward, to this event, and they are celebrating. Uh, when we close the service, uh, we're going to celebrate communion. And communion is typifies in many ways this Passover. Uh, and what we have come to understand is that Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remissions of sin. We have come to understand that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life. And the only means for our sins to be covered and forgiven is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn in Scripture that He's the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the world. Your salvation, my salvation, was not an afterthought. It was not plan B. But this has been in God's heart throughout eternity, and it came to pass in time. And here we are way down the road. When we come to the table, we're going to once again celebrate and honor and revere anew the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how John the Baptist announced him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you understand that's what we're called to do in this day and time? We're to bring to the world the Lamb of God because the Lamb of God makes all the difference in the world. I was watching the news the other night, and they had, uh, I think his name's Dr. Drew. He's a conservative doctor, and he was analyzing what's going on in California in our major cities with, with the homelessness. And, of course, the answer that we're being given is that we just need more housing. 
we need to put these people up and, and they need to have shelter and that, and that's going to change everything. Dr. Drew says, no, that's not going to happen. He says the problem is the addiction. It's the mental illness that's there, and that you can put them in a wonderful place, but they'll either destroy it or they'll walk away from it. He says the answer is much deeper. We need to find a cure. We need a cure. We need a cure for the drug addiction and the insanity that's in our society. Well, do you realize, if you don't, you must realize this, that all of that is the product of sin. It's our rebellious heart that rebel against God, and that visits that self then upon a society. So we can wring our hands, and we can argue whether we should vote as liberals or conservatives, but the answer is not in our politics. The answer is in our Savior. The answer is in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's not about how good we are or about, uh, uh, you know, our personalities, our temperaments. It's about Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain before in the foundations of the world, and you are his witnesses in this world. I want you to think about this when you think about Passover. I want you to think about what the book of Hebrews has to say about this Passover lamb. Passover lamb. It says that we have a great high priest over the house of God who is acquainted with all of our sufferings and that he empathizes with whatever is going on in our lives. And then the Scripture says to you and to me, come boldly to the throne of grace that you can find help in the time of need. So we do have a refuge. We have a refuge in God. And then we have a wonderful statement made by John the Beloved in uh, 1 John where he says, "Uh, My beloved, I write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sins, we have an advocate advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation or a satisfaction for your sins, not only only for your sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Ponder this thought, if you will. I heard this on the news, I think it was this morning, I was driving in, and somebody was talking, and they were saying that there are now 7 billion plus people on planet Earth. I don't know how many people have preceded us, and I don't know how many people will come after I'm no longer here. But that's a whole bunch of people, and that's a whole bunch of sin, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does that tell me about the redemption that's in Jesus Christ? This one man, this one man, Jesus Christ, is so righteous, so holy, the Son of Man gives his life upon the cross that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the invitation is, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Such sufficiency in the atonement of Christ. I trust that that will draw your, out of your heart a sense of worship and adoration of this great and wondrous Savior we have named Jesus Christ. 
Then the next movement in the text is all about manna. Now, I've thought about manna. What it, you know, it really means what is it? What is it? And uh, uh, I think it was kind of like Bisquick. Uh, I'm not sure, but something like that. <laughs> you can make anything out of it. And so for 40 years, manna's on the menu. And we read then in the text, in verse 17, uh, actually, verse, uh, I mean verse 11 and 12, it says, The very next day they began to eat unleavened bread and roasted grain harvested from the land. No man, manna appeared on the day they first ate from the crops of the land, and it was never seen again. Never seen again. God had a new thing going. But... As you go back in history, you find that that was the way God took care of his people in the wilderness. Then as you come forward in time, we see Jesus once again. And in the uh, sixth chapter of John's gospel, after Jesus feeds the thousands, remember, by dividing the fish and the loaves, and he feeds 5,000 men plus whoever else is there, and people following Jesus for lunch. If we hang out with Jesus, he can, man, he, he, he'll feed us. And so Jesus said, you, you're not following me because you saw the miracle. You are following me for lunch. You're following me for a free meal. And then he says something that is utterly uh, off. Uh, it just turns you off. It's, it's off-putting. He says, and, and get this, he says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And then he says of himself, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And if you eat this bread, you will never hunger again. Well, obviously, Jesus is talking in a parabolic form. He he is using a metaphor. And he's saying, you're going to have to ingest me. Ingest me. Now, I want you to think about that a little bit. This is the Jesus book from Genesis to Revelation. If you're going to find the bread of life, you have to nurture nurture and nourish yourself upon the Word of God. Remember when Jesus was doing battle with the evil one? And the evil one said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And Jesus said, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Cute story. Uh, uh, Some friends of ours sent this to us, and it was about uh, Doris Holland's uh, little grandson, Cain. Cain's just a smart little boy. He's only four. But in this interview the parents is doing with Cain, uh, they're talking, he, he's interested in anatomy and different functions in the body and the systems. So uh, uh, some, the interview goes something like this. Cain, what are the, uh, the systems of the body that you know about? Well, he knew about the circulatory system. He knew about the respiratory system, 
And then the question is, well, which is your favorite? He said, I like the digestive system. Now that's, I think, why a little boy might be interested in that. <laughs> he likes food. Well, how does that work, Cain? Cain says, well, you put your, the food in your mouth, and then you chew the food, and it breaks down, and there are enzy- enzymes that are added. And then it goes down the esophagus, and it goes into the stomach. And in the stomach, there, there are acids, and the acids break down the food. The food passes through the small intestine, it's absorbed into the body, and that's where your body is nourished. And then it passes into the colon, it comes out through the anus, (laughs) and brown stuff comes out. (laughs) That's a four-year-old. I think there's a lesson in that. The lesson is, what do you feed on? What do I feed on? Isaiah says, their hearts have deceived them. They feed on ashes. Hosea says, they feed on wind. But Jeremiah says, I found your words, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and the delight of my heart. The psalmist in the 19th Psalm says, oh, the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey, is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. So where will you delight your soul? Where will you nourish your soul? It is in Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. And if you want to be a healthy, vital Christ follower, learn to nourish yourself on God's Word. And I'm going to give you one word that will serve you the rest of your life if you apply it, and it's the word discipline. The word discipline is discipline yourself to have a routine where you sit before God with your Bible open, you can begin with a little portion of God's Word or a big portion. It doesn't matter. But as you read it, let it come into your soul, and it will nourish you and strengthen you to live a life that is promised in Christ. And then the final message of this text is contained in the last three verses. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, He looked up, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you a friend or a foe? The man answers, this person answers, Neither one. I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this point, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. Later on, or earlier on in history, Joshua's mentor, Moses, was on the backside of the desert tending sheep. And he saw a bush that was on fire, and he was attracted to that bush because it just kept burning, and it wasn't burning out. And he heard a voice speak out of the bush, Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. 
some years later, after Joshua's experience, Isaiah will be in the presence of the Lord. And in this vision, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And the glory of the Lord fills the whole temple where the Lord is seen. And he sees angels, and they are worshiping the Lord. And there's a deep, he, 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 they're, they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah is overcome by this, and he cries out, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then one of the angels took, a coal, took tongs and took a coal off the altar, and it placed the coal on his lips. And he, the angel said, your sins are forgiven you. John the Beloved was probably as close as any man could be to the Lord Jesus when he was on earth. And when you read the first chapter of the book of Revelation, John, again, has an incredible vision. And he hears a loud noise. Uh, he, it, it, it's, it's like the 4th of July going off here. And, but it's awesome. It's overwhelming. And he hears a voice that speaks, and it sounds like the roar of the ocean or like thunder. And the voice speaks speaks, and John's eyes are opened, and he sees one whose hair is white as snow, and his head is white. He has a gown on, and across his chest is a golden sash, and his feet shine like burnished brass, and bam, John is on his face. And then Jesus reaches down and touches him and lifts him up. He says, John, I have a job for you. John was uh, on holy ground. Moses was on holy ground. And now, in this text, Joshua is having a holy ground experience. Let me suggest this to you. If you subscribe to the teaching of the Bible that says that Christ is in you, and that's the hope of glory, if you subscribe to the teaching that Christ by His Spirit lives in you, and is that not what Jesus said? Uh, I'm going to go away, but I'll not leave you alone. I will send the Comforter, and He spoke of the Holy Spirit. And He said, He will be right inside of you, and He will lead and guide you in all truth. And I and my Father, we will come and we will take up our resident within you. Now, can you imagine this, that everywhere that Ron Williams walks, because he's indwelled by Christ himself, by the triune Godhead, that's holy ground. Can you believe that about yourself? It's not about performance. It's about who you are in him, so that whatever the circumstance, wherever you're at, is holy ground. I tell you, that will modify the way you live. You'll think differently about life. And it will transform the way you live because it will be a broken, contrite heart before God. And like, uh, I, like Moses and Isaiah and John and Joshua, 
uh, you surrender your life to him because he is indeed the captain of our salvation. He's been made perfect. He is now Lord of all. And someday every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So why not do that today? Why not do that every day of our lives? Because in that, you will discover the promised life. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Well, in just a minute, we'll talk a little bit about the communion. Uh, and before I do that, I just want to pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to these dear people. I know they are loved in your sight, and they are your precious children. And I ask God that together we might plumb the depths of the life that you have for us, that we'll not settle just for the obvious, but we'll go to a deeper place in you so that we can be transformed into your image and likeness. And Lord, as we come to the table today, we want to honor you with the surrender of our lives to you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. What I'd like for you to do this morning, uh, and let me refresh you about what these elements stand for. The juice is a representation of the precious blood of Christ that was shed for the cleansing of our sins. The bread has to do with his broken body, and it has to do with him burying our guilt and our shame and our punishment. And, his, and by his stripes, the Scripture says, we are healed. It's the healing of our, our souls. Uh, it is the, the way that we come into a, a living relationship with God. And so keep that in mind, and I would encourage you as you take the cup and bread that you spend some time reflecting on the significance of what you're doing because there's much more than the obvious in the bread and in the cup. And I, we can do this in an orderly fashion. And so this morning, the elements are all at the front of the church. So I would instruct you to come to the, the, the uh, inside aisles, come forward, go by the tables, and then return to your seats down the side aisles. And thank you for letting me speak to you this morning. God bless you.